This morning we are blessed to have Dave Veldhorst with us, who is the Director of Mobilization for Mission to the World, and it is his job, along with his team, to go across the United States to, to inspire Christians to help raise up the next generation of missionaries to go on the mission field to the ends of the earth. As a church, we give about um, close to $200,000 a year um, from our church in the investment of mission in mission efforts outside of our church, and about a third of those dollars goes to the work of MTW, to the Mission to the World, and its various components. And so we're glad to have Dave here with us, particularly as you heard from uh, our Japan team about the great needs that are present within Japan, and those needs for missionaries, for people to be served, for people to consider going into mission, for youth to say, to be raised up and say, what do I want to do with my life? I want to serve by bringing the gospel known to another, another people group, to the other side of the other, on the other side of the world. It's Dave's job to help make that happen and be used by God's Spirit to do that. He himself was a missionary for 13 years in Thailand, and now he has shifted over the last four years focusing on raising up laborers to go into the mission field. So Dave, please come and open God's Word for us this morning. Thank you. It's good to be with you this morning, Cornerstone, and grateful that you have a pastor that has a deep love for missions, both locally and globally. And uh, also enjoyed being with your teens last night. That's a great group of uh, young people you have here, so it's great to be with them. This morning, I invite you to turn to John chapter 12. We'll be looking at verses 20 to 26. As it comes up on the screen or as you open your Bibles, let's ask the Lord to bless us. Father, we thank you that you give us the words of life, and so today we come to your word and we want to take a humble posture where you speak to us. We hear your voice. You reveal to us where true life is found. So, Father, would you do that through the power of your Spirit? Would you open up the eyes of our hearts to see the beauty and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ, that we might be willing to die to self, to live for Him? And it's in His name we pray. Amen. Many of you, last night when I was talking to the teens, I shared about the fact that um, after we had worked in Japan for two years, we moved over and we worked in Thailand for 13 years. One of the first places that we worked was doing a small church plant where there were many slums right around our church planting area. Um, you look at me and you think, well, there's a Dutch guy from the Midwest, you know, a small little village of Oostburg, Wisconsin, near Kohler, where uh, cleanliness is next to godliness, where we live on Lombardi time, where you always show up 10 minutes before the event, where you live a life that's really uber-structured. <laughs> Thus, we began working in the slums right around our area, and uh, we began to go into the slums and uh, began to reach out, uh, eating food that uh, wasn't necessarily clean, uh, starting prayer meetings where after every prayer meeting, uh, the mosquitoes that had been growing in the unhealthy water would come and bite us so that my kids and I would constantly have fevers uh, after attending prayer meeting in the slums. Uh, when we started our first church plant, uh, the church grew very rapidly from about 40 to about 120 people coming, but over half the congregation was under the age of 15, had never been in church before, uh, so I'm used to structure an order like this, and I got kids running all over in church. Uh, we've got, a, we didn't even have a Sunday school program hardly, we had kids everywhere, we were just bringing them in, uh, in trucks, and um, it was just utter chaos, and so I remember just feeling like, oh my goodness, this is like constant death. I'm dying to comfort. I'm dying to relative good health. I'm dying to my love of structure. I'm dying to my love of order and timeliness. 
uh, I'm even just dying to my need to be in control because the Holy Spirit just kept showing us, this is where I'm working, come and follow. And it was different than the plans that we had made. There had to be death in order for life to be produced. It doesn't have to be a big death, though. Uh, recently, I was flying on a flight from Philadelphia to Milwaukee on Southwest Air. I was one of the last people to get on. I went to the very back of the plane, and I was, I was just rejoicing inside because I knew I was going to get 90 minutes of peace and quiet. There were middle seats the whole way back. The flight attendant said the door has been closed. I look up, and there's one person standing there, a guy in sweats, and he walks all the way to the back of the plane. He sits next to me. And I'm like, wow, you know, what are you, what are you doing? Man, there's all open seats. And um, I notice he's just fidgeting a lot, and I, and I say to him, you know, are you okay? And he says, you know, I, I was sitting in the waiting area, and I noticed you, and you seem to be the kind of guy that I'd want to tell my story to. And I'm like, oh, no. You know, <laughs> there, there goes my peace and quiet. There goes my headphones. You know, he, he's kind of like, like, he's saying, like, what do you do? And then I say, I'm a pastor, and that really blew it, because then I can't put my headbuds, earbuds in. And um, I began talking with him, and... He says, you know, he goes, my dad is dying in Florida. I hate flying, and I don't think I'll ever be able to go back and see him again alive. And then I said, would you like me to pray with you? And thus began 90 minutes of prayer and sharing uh, with him. So sometimes the death that we're called to self, that we're called to die to, is not to be a big thing like going overseas. It is simply in the moment you realize people around you who are going to impede on your schedule, but they need to hear of Christ. There has to be death in order for life to be produced. As you notice in the text this morning, um, Jesus is talking about this big harvest. Jesus has sees these Greeks coming and inquiring, and it's reminding him of his death is going to produce this remarkable harvest, where today we see people from all tongues and tribes and nations uh, coming to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, where the church is growing rapidly. Uh, especially in places like South America and Africa and parts of Asia, where today were what used to be closed nations, today are seeing remarkable growth of people coming to Jesus Christ. Jesus has said up until our text that his hour has not yet come, and yet here in our text in verse 23, Jesus says, my hour has come. So certainly in our text, there's these overtones of death. You know the, the religious authorities are planning to put Lazarus to death, uh, you have Judas who's plotting to put Jesus to death. You have Mary that has poured out ointment on Jesus, kind of uh, prefiguring the fact that he is going to be dying and then being buried. And amidst all of that death, uh, Jesus says, you know, um, God is going to get glory. God's going to get glory uh, in the dying of the seed. So the first thing you notice in the text is there's this dying seed that Jesus refers to. And again, you, you might be shocked. I come from the great state of Wisconsin, even though we did lose to the Buckeyes last night. Um, I, you know, in, in the great state of, of land of milk and cheese, I know very little about farming, actually. All I know is that when I go to the local Piggly Wiggly, um, there is wheat bread there, and I just grab it. I don't know how I got there. Um, but Jesus here is talking about this, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains a single grain, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. So Jesus is referring to this, this grain of wheat that's going to get planted. And again, um, it's interesting that grains of wheat are still planted one at a time. Um, even in the Midwest, we have this thing called the grain drill. It's a machine that you pull behind your tractor, and it still will have a little grain of wheat go through a tube, and it's going to go into the ground and then get covered up. And then through the Lord's providence of, of rain and sun, uh, that little grain is going to uh, have little uh, seeds come out of it and grow, and it's going to grow into the wheat. So it's still planted uh, one grain at a time. 
And again, it's amazing if you take two, bush, two bushels of grain um, seeds and you plant them in the ground, you might think, well, how much can you get from that? Maybe 20 bushels, maybe 30 bushels. You can get about 50 bushels of wheat out of simply two bushels being planted. So that literally means you could plant uh, a football field, one acre uh, of grain, and out of that's going to come about 2,800 loaves of bread. That's the kind of harvest that Jesus has in mind here. Jesus is looking at uh, his disciples saying, I'm going to have to die, and you are going to have to die. And through that death, new life is going to come. Jesus is looking at that cruel cross that is going to be coming, that, that Roman um, way of terrorizing people by putting them up on that cruel cross where you will be naked and you will be mocked and you will be shamed publicly. And Jesus is saying that is going to be the way in which um, the Father is going to get glorified and a harvest is going to come to the nations. So certainly um, the disciples had a hard time, right, understanding that 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 would be the way, God, that you're going to get glory, that that's going to be the way that this harvest is going to come. And we have a hard time understanding it, I think. We have a hard time understanding the necessity of the cross of Christ in order to produce the harvest. You notice in the text, um, Jesus is basically sharing uh, the gospel. Jesus is saying, you know, I'm going to have to come and die on that cross so that the power of sin is going to get broken so that the sins of the world are going to get taken away, so that the wrath of God, the condemnation of God, is going to get turned away so that people can be saved. And again, you know, when Jesus here is talking about that work on the cross, He's simply kind of echoing what we've already heard in the Old Testament. If you go to Psalm 22, it says, all the families of the nations are going to worship before you. And then if you go to Isaiah 52, it says, my servant's going to be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. His appearance will be marred beyond any human semblance. So shall he sprinkle the nations. So here you have Jesus um, saying in our text, you know, he is willingly going to subordinate himself in obedience to God the Father. And in his doing that, all of the nations are going to be able to find salvation. And as they do that, God's going to get the glory. It's important uh, to notice in the text that Jesus doesn't say that his example saves you. Jesus doesn't say, here's my example, now follow my example and you'll be saved. You also notice in the text, he doesn't say, my teaching saves you. I mean, we were in Thailand, most of the Thai people are Buddhist, and it was typical for them to say, this is what Buddha taught us. Buddha gave us some principles, some rules, he showed us the path, and they said it's similar to going on the path, getting on your bike, and working it out yourself. That's not what Jesus says here. See, the offense of the gospel is this that you and I sitting here this morning, we acknowledge that we cannot save ourselves, that no one can come to the Father unless the Father draws him or her, that our sufficiency, as we're going to notice in the table today, our sufficiency in all of our righteousness is found in something that's given to us as a gift. So today, when we come to worship, one of the first postures of our heart is we have to die to every effort of self-salvation. We have to die to every effort to say, I can earn my righteousness I can merit it myself. Instead, I'm going to humbly say, I need Jesus, you to give it all to me as a gift. And so when we come today, we acknowledge that in Christ, by faith, we have died and we have risen. And today we reign and we rule with Christ. So you notice in the text, there's this truth about Jesus. The seed has to die. But then you notice in the text, Jesus wants to talk about fruit. He wants to talk about harvest. And again, you think about the two things that Jesus' death produces in those who believe. The first thing that it does is it produces life in us. 
that if you have turned by faith to Jesus Christ for your salvation, today you have life. Look at verse 25. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this life will keep it for eternal life. And again, remember what we were like before we believed in Jesus Christ as our Savior. Before we believe in Jesus Christ as our Savior, we are people who are dead in sin. Because of Adam and Eve's sin, we are born as men and women who essentially are dead men and dead women walking. Oh, yes, you might look at our life. It might look like we have life. When I was in Thailand, many of my neighbors were Buddhist. They were Muslim. They were very upright. Uh, they loved their families. They loved their wives. They were very, very rigorous in their religion. And yet, they look like they have life but they don't. They are simply dead men walking. Jesus comes to lay down His life for us. So as we trust in Him for salvation, we are transferred from the kingdom of death into the kingdom of life. And so we're able to give, have eyes that actually see what true life is, right? I mean, to the degree that this morning you are a believer in Jesus Christ, God has given you new eyesight. Where you look at Jesus Christ and you say, there is my priceless treasure. There is my hidden treasure that is worth me laying aside everything to have him. And this is the person, the God that I want to live for. And then we're given the Spirit. And the Spirit is our counselor. And the Spirit convicts us of our sin. The Spirit convicts us of our self-righteousness. The Spirit convicts us of all of our attempts to protect self. And the Spirit convinces us that is worthy to suffer and die for Jesus Christ. See, the death of Jesus, it doesn't just produce life for the Jewish people, it produces life for all tongues and tribes and nations. But the second thing that the, that the death of Jesus does for us is it not just produces life, it produces us a joyful willingness to die to self. The joyful willingness to die to self. So again, if you think about it, because of our union with Adam and Eve, we have the propensity to not want to die to self, Right? Because of our union with Adam and Eve, we grow up, we are born with a human heart that just loves self. We love to be self-protective, we like to save ourselves, we like to glorify ourselves. Uh, Charles Taylor, the philosopher, the Canadian philosopher, wrote a book called The Secular Age where he talks about how in our age we live with this buffered self. We no longer have this transcendence. We don't no longer believe there's a transcendent. And because of that, we turn to created things and we try to create a self. And so because we try to create a self based on created things, it becomes very, very hard to die to self because the things that you have to die to are the very things that give you an identity. But you notice because of our relationship with Jesus Christ, you and I this morning have been given a rock-solid identity. My identity is not in my Dutchness. It's not in my ability to be a good father, a good parent, a good husband. It's not in my ability to be a good preacher or try to be a good preacher. My identity is in Christ and Christ alone. And that's an identity that no one can take away from me. Suffering can't take it away. Change in culture can't take it away. Lack of human approval can't take it away. That is an identity that can never be taken away from me. And because I have a rock-solid identity, because a believer in Christ is a rock-solid identity, we then can be the, the easiest people who are willing to die to all the things in the world that would tend to give us an identity. You notice the Apostle Paul describing that in 2 Corinthians 5.14. The Apostle Paul says this, one has died for all. So he's saying Jesus Christ has died for all to give them salvation. But secondly, therefore all have died. So if, you have, if we have turned to Jesus Christ for our salvation, we already have died. We have died to our old life, our old way of gaining approval, our old way of gaining an identity, our old way of feeling like we have gained some status. We have died to that. 
And why have we died to that? Paul writes, he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So there you have it. Jesus Christ dies in order to accomplish salvation for all who turn to him by faith. But the fruit that's produced is, number one, we have new life. But secondly, you are given a heart that is enabled to joyfully die every day for the sake of Jesus Christ. You notice in the text, the text um, becomes a very disturbing text because Jesus says, you know, I'm going to have to die. And then he turns to his disciples and say, and you're going to have to die as well. Jesus saying, my pattern of dying to produce life is going to have to be the pattern for every true disciple of Jesus Christ. You think about the Apostle Paul before he knew Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul is on that road to Damascus. From his perspective, he has made it, right? He's the Hebrew of Hebrews. He's had one of the best teachers in Gamaliel. He says he is above all with regards to zeal. When it comes to the law, uh, he has a righteousness above others. In other words, from Paul's perspective, he has a remarkably strong world-given identity that he has produced. And yet when he meets Jesus on that road, what happens? Jesus, he dies. He's enabled and he's motivated to die for Jesus Christ. He's able to say, I'm able to give, lay down my life for Jesus Christ. So you notice in the text, um, when Paul is able to do that, it's because Paul is looking at what Christ has done for him. And he's saying, now we must do the same for Jesus Christ. And again, this pattern of living, this pattern of dying is hard, right? I mean, when I wake up this morning and I come to this worship service, there's a little bit of that fiber in me that wants to be approved as a good preacher. When I go out and I work with MTW, I want to have some identity and some approval for being a good mobilizer for missions. And yet Jesus Christ here says, if you hold on to and you cling to that old way of life, there is no dying, but there also is no future. There's no glory. There's no multiplication. Jesus here essentially is going to go to the cross so that you and I can have true life. John Piper, when he was reflecting on this passage, he talks about how this dying to self to live for Christ, it's both hard and it's glorious. It's hard because all of our human tendencies of our heart is to avoid dying. I mean, our heart by nature is into self-protection and self-preservation. And so it's hard to die to self. It's also hard because we love what we have here in life, right? When we look at the good gifts that God has given you, maybe a spouse, family, friends, children, work, recreation, and Jesus says you're going to have to call all of that a lesser love. He says you're going to have to hate it in comparison to the surpassing love you have for Jesus Christ. And then it's also hard because you and I, just by nature, we want to walk in our own paths rather than walking in the path where Jesus Christ wants us to go. Again, when I was a kid growing up in Oostburg, Wisconsin, I was telling the teens last night, I never really thought that God would call me into missions. I pretty much had my path laid out for me of where I thought I was going to go. And Jesus got a hold of me at Urbana Missions Conference in Champaign-Urbana and changed the trajectory of my life. We have that same tendency. You and I, when we uh, face suffering, it's in those moments that Jesus Christ is going to be glorified. When you and I face rejection, it's in those moments that Jesus Christ is going to be shown over and over again to be our true identity. George Mueller was once asked why he was so successful in building and sustaining the orphanages that he had started. And here's what George Mueller said. He goes, there was a day when I died. 
I died to George Mueller, his opinions, his preferences, his tastes, and his will. I died to the world, its approval and its censure. I died to the approval or blame of my brothers or friends. I have yearned only to show myself approved by God. I think of Adoniram Judson. If you ever have read the book, To the Golden Shore, it's a beautiful story of Judson's life. When Judson went to Burma in 1813, he was told by William Carey, who then was a missionary to India, not to go. He went at the age of 24 years old, and he worked for 38 years in Burma. When he went to Burma, he lost uh, many of his children uh, to death. Three of his wives, his first three wives, all passed away. And for much of uh, Judson's time in Burma, he saw very little fruit. In fact, after 21 years, he went out into the woods, he dug a hole in the ground, he laid in the hole, and he begged God to take his life because he saw no fruit. And yet, when I'm working in Thailand today, up in the northern part of Thailand, most of the Karen people in that area see their great, 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 great spiritual grandfather to be traced back to Ayrnarun Judson. Today, there are 3,700 congregations, 1.9 million followers of Christ in Myanmar. And that was all because a man began to lay down his life and die to so much so that life would come. Jesus says in verse 26 that those who are willing to die for Christ will it be our reward. It says the Father will honor him or her. It's the honor of God, which is the greatest reward that we will receive. Some of you know at Christmas time when you give your kid a gift, uh, inevitably there's going to be some battle going on on your floor as the kid's not going to want to give up that gift and then someone's going to be fighting for that same toy. You know, the only way you can get one kid to let go of a toy that's desirable is to present them with a much more desirable toy. It is only then that they'll relinquish the gift. Jim Elliott, the former missionary to Ecuador, once wrote, Father, let me be weak that I might loose my grip on everything temporal. My life, my reputation, my possessions, Lord, let me loose the tension of this grasping hand. How often I have released my grasp only to retain what I prized through harmless longings, the fondling touch. Open my hands that I, releasing all, might be released from all that binds me and holds me back. Jesus thought of heaven, yes, even equality with God, not a thing to be clutched at, so release my grasp. If I asked you this morning, what are you holding on to? What are you holding on to that's keeping you from dying in order that new life might be produced through you? What are those little harmless longings in your life that if you loosed your grasp on it, God may actually use you to produce more fruit? Is it longing to have a nice financial nest egg rather than giving financially in a way that will help produce missions around the world? Is it longing to have a nice comfortable life rather than going through the messy work of either knowing a missionary or becoming one, both locally and globally? Is it loving to live a predictable life rather than venturing off into missions which inevitably is going to be unpredictable? Again, I'm 54 years old. I would pray that if the Lord gives me more life, that my life would be characterized by this pattern of daily dying to self so that Christ might be revealed in and through me. Two applications. First of all, you notice in the text that the death of a seed is gradual. Um, Jesus, when he saw that he had to go to the cross, he even struggled. He prayed with the Lord that if possible, the cup would be taken away. And yet he said, may your will be done. So these principles of daily dying hating good created things for the surpassing greatness of loving Christ and following Christ, this willingness to learn daily to die to some things so that God would use you in missions both locally and globally, that takes time. It takes time. Um, 
you know, the death to your schedule, what would it look like today to die to 10 minutes of your schedule today so that you could pray for missions? What would it look like to die to a little part of your entertainment budget this year so that a little bit more money would be freed up to give to Guatemala and the Philippines? What would it look like to die in a little way to your vision for your future so that you might say, Lord, are you calling me to go for one, three, six, nine months or 11 months as an intern in Japan? When I met my wife and I went on our first date with her, there was one question that she had to say yes to, although we wouldn't have any more dates. I said, are you willing to go into global missions? And she said yes, but she would acknowledge that it took her about 10 years to learn what that actually was going to mean. As every year we prayed, Lord, is this the year? Is this the year? Is this the year? So start today. Ask the Lord to today show you one little area of your life where there could be a death to self so that you could live for Jesus Christ and the gospel could go out through you. But secondly, you notice in the text, the harvest is going to be great. When we were in, in Japan for two years, um, I taught 16 English classes. One of my English classes was actually all Sony executives. We had eight Sony executives that I taught English to, uh, 30, 60 minutes of English, 30 minutes of Bible. Um, we had them in our home. Uh, we did a lot of hospitality. When I left Japan after two years, I saw no visible fruit that anything I had done had made any impact. Nothing. I had nothing to put in a prayer letter saying it worked. <laughs> someone came to Christ. I discipled someone into greater maturity. Absolutely nothing. And then it was my ninth year in Bangkok where I got an email from one of those Sony executives. He goes, uh, myself and three of your classmates, we're all in Bangkok on a business trip. Can we have a meal with you? I went off for a meal with them. One of the, several of them were just beaming with joy in their face. And they said, guess what? Uh, three of us are now Christians. Two of them are serving as elders in their church. For 13 years or so, that little gospel seed sat in their heart. And from my perspective, nothing was happening. And yet, that little gospel seed began to bring fruit and a harvest. So this morning, as we pray about missions, we come because the promise is that Jesus says there will be a tremendous harvest. So as we die to self, as we live for Christ, may the Lord bless this church as you seek to be used by Him to see as you give, as you pray, as you send, that the Lord is bringing a great harvest. God is getting all the glory, and Jesus is being exalted. There has to be death in order to produce life. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before your word this morning, and we want to have hearts that are humbled. We, we might come this morning, and we, we're not even convinced that we live so much of our time just for self. And so this morning, we would pray that the very first thing that you would do through your spirit is you would convict us of our selfishness and how so much of our lives is really all about us. So we would pray, first of all, that you would produce remarkable humility within us through the conviction of sin. But then secondly, may we, you help us to fix our eyes on the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ as all of our righteousness. Jesus, in you, we have a rock-solid identity that cannot be taken away from us. In you, we have our greatest inheritance. In you, we have life. And so, Jesus, as we cling to you, would you then enable us to die to self so that starting in our neighborhoods, in our schools, right around us, we might be people that have eyes wide open to those who today are walking in darkness, who need to hear the gospel. And then would you lift up our eyes to see the great harvest that is coming, what you're doing in Africa and Asia and parts, and, and parts of South America. Father, we're seeing places that before were just hardened, barren areas that today are springing to life. 
Would you open up our eyes to see the greatness of the harvest? And then would you prompt us to say, Lord, what are you calling us to be and do as we give, as we pray, and maybe even as we go? Would you send us? Would you use us so that ultimately, God, you get all the glory? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.